This is Positively Farming Media. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. So the last couple of weeks, we focused on selecting your fruit tree, preparing the soil, and then finally planting your fruit tree. So now it's time to talk about maintaining that tree. Just like anything else in the garden, your fruit tree is going to give you a much greater harvest if you give it some attention. I will be the first to admit that I am lousy at this. It's not that I don't know what to do and how to do it. It's just that I don't get around to doing it at the appropriate time. Some of my trees haven't minded this at all, and they have produced boatloads of fruit with no problem. My most recent trees, however, are absolutely suffering for it. It's something I intend to fix. So not only will we talk about pruning and pest management in this episode, but I'll share with you what I plan to do in my garden to be sure I'm out there doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done so I can finally get the harvests I want from my trees and maybe it will help you in maintaining your fruit trees too. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. All right, first off this week, let's hit the DRL. What am I doing? Um, We are officially into fall planting, finally. It feels like it's late this year, and it actually kind of is, but our weather has been so excruciatingly hot, and I thought we were going to get a little bit of a break, and we did, but it rained the entire time, which I'm not complaining about. We absolutely needed that. But then all of a sudden the heat jumped back up again and we were back up into the upper 90s and it was just way too hot. The soil temperatures were way too warm for us to be able to put any of the fall plants in the ground. So this week we are dropping back down into more like the mid 80s instead of the mid 90s. So it's a little bit more conducive to getting some of that stuff planted. And I'm hoping that this is the trend that we're going to follow from here on out. But even if it's not, I really just need to get the stuff into the ground now. And so it can't wait. It's it's happening. It's got to go. So we're starting with the brassicas, and I'm trying to plant them in areas where they're going to get a little bit of afternoon shade so that they don't get cooked um, and they don't decide to bolt. And then we'll move uh, slowly into the other things like the green beans and the lettuces and that kind of stuff. I'm still waiting for the stupid Japanese beetles to be done uh, before we plant another round of green beans because I don't know if you remember if I mentioned this, they completely destroyed the first two plantings in the spring that we did of the green beans. Um, The green beans had just come up in the first batch, or no, they were already flowered and fruiting, um, producing beans in the first batch when the Japanese beetles came in and just destroyed the plants and destroyed the beans. And then the succession planting that was there two weeks later had just started to um, produce its leaves. 
and started to produce its flowers and they just decimated those plants too. So we didn't get a single green bean out of the spring crop. But I did mention, and I did do it, I went ahead and threw a couple of seeds, a couple, I think, I don't know, a couple dozen seeds in um, some raised beds with some trellises of pole beans. And I did this late, but still should be able to maybe get a little bit of a harvest out of them. We'll see how it goes. Those have been miraculously left alone so far, so we will see how it goes. We'll see if I get anything out of those pole beans, but... Um, so far, you know, we're, we're just now tiptoeing into fall planting and that'll continue for the next few weeks. So what am I reading? Um, I'm actually reading a lot about hydroponics right now. It's something that I've wanted to tip my toe into just a little bit. It really is something that I want to utilize my seed starting room for because it's in a great protected area in my basement. I can keep the temperature and the humidity pretty much controlled most of the year. And it kind of ends up being unused space for most of the season. Um, other than like drying the garlic... Um, it doesn't really get used much during during the busiest part of the season. And I thought, you know, during the hottest part of our season, we can't grow lettuces unless we're doing them, you know, indoors in some way. So I thought this would be a great way to continue to be able to provide um, ourselves and our customers with lettuce in the middle of the summer when we're getting all those other really great lettuce or salad ingredients, you know, like tomatoes and cucumbers and things that you want to throw on top of a bed of lettuce. So I'm considering setting up a system in that room that not only could be utilized during the heat of the summer, but that I could also continue to utilize throughout the winter time. So when it gets entirely too cold for lettuces to survive, I'd be able to continue growing there too. So um, like I said, I'm just now kind of starting to read up on it more in depth. And so I will share that information with you as I learn. And then what am I listening to? Um, I have started listening to the Two Acre Homestead podcast with hosts Lisa and her husband, Kevin, who moved from a suburban lifestyle um, in Arizona to a small homestead in a much more rural area of Arizona. So Lisa is a new member of the Positively Farming Media podcast network, and so I thought it would be a great idea to get caught up on what's going on with her show. It's a straightforward look at being new homesteaders, and Lisa shares tips and tricks while she's talking about what's going right and what's going very wrong. So I will leave a link to that in the show notes. All right, so the question of the week this week is being asked really, really frequently in my area and in a lot of areas in North America right now, and that is, how do I know when my watermelon is ready to pick? One of the most common questions I get at the farm stand is, how do I pick a good cantaloupe or watermelon? Followed by the question from the gardeners wondering when theirs is ripe. And so, honestly, I get it because there is nothing worse than growing this big, beautiful watermelon vine and seeing the handful of fruit that will develop on most varieties because... If you're growing full-sized watermelon, you're only going to get three or four usually off of that one vine. And so, and it's a long season type of thing. You kind of wait and you baby it and you wait for it to come ripe. So there is nothing worse than getting all excited and then picking an underripe melon. So first things first with this, refer back to your planting date 
and the days to maturity for the variety that you planted. This is, again, another reason for having a garden journal. This is going to give you an idea of when you should start looking for those signs of ripeness. Once you kind of figure out around the time when you should be looking for these signs, you want to check the stem. So there's two sort of camps of um, this. Some of us say, look at where the melon is actually attached to the stem, so that attachment point of the stem to the watermelon itself, and wait until it becomes dry and starts to brown. Um, the other common advice is to look for the curly tendril that's on the stem above the watermelon. And when it is brown and dried up, that means that your watermelon is ripe. For me, I prefer the first method because this second method with just looking at the tendril, it's been really hit or miss for me. So definitely want to see that, that that tendril is brown and dried up, but then I also want to see that that stem attachment is starting to sort of shrink down and look a little shriveled. It doesn't necessarily have to be totally dry and totally um, brown uh, because then you might be waiting too long and it might be overripe, but just looking like it's no longer plump and trying to feed nutrients to the watermelon. That's another good good way to check. And then look at the underside of your watermelon. You're looking at the field spot. This is the spot where it's been sitting on the ground. That spot should be a creamy, dark yellow color. It should no longer be white, okay? It's always going to be pale. Pretty much as soon as the your, your melon starts growing, it's going to be a pale color. Um, but white is not ripe. You want it to be a dark yellow. The other thing to look at with the rind is to notice when it starts to look a little bit less shiny. The, the, the rind is going to look more dull. Now this, this is kind of hit or miss. This is not one of my favorite ways to tell, but if you add that in with the other signs that you're looking for and you see one or more of these signs is there, okay, then you're going to be a little bit more confident in picking that melon thinking that it's ripe. Another thing to check is to sort of squeeze on the melon itself. A ripe watermelon is still going to feel nice and solid and sturdy if you give it a squeeze. And the blossom end, right, this is the end that's opposite from where it's attached to the stem. The blossom end is going to have just a little bit of give. This should indicate that the fruit or the meat of the, of the fruit is ripe and ready to eat. If the blossom end is still very solid and it has no give whatsoever, it is likely underripe. If the melon itself, when you squeeze it, is soft or it has any squish to it, then more than likely your melon is overripe and you need to pick that one right away. You can open it and check to see whether or not any part of it is good or not. And if it's not, then you're more than likely going to, you know, go ahead and pitch that one. Um, and then finally, this is one of my foolproof-ish ways, it's always ish, right, um, to figure out whether or not a watermelon is ripe, and that is to knock on it. Now, this does take practice, but a ripe watermelon should sound hollow when you knock or you thump on it. This takes practice, but yes, it works in the grocery store and it works at the farmer's market. Um, I will always, if somebody's asking me, hey, will you pick me out a really good watermelon? I will thump on it and I will let them hear what that sounds like. If it sounds sort of muted when you knock, then it's likely underripe. If it sounds like a sort of solid thud, then it's kind of overripe. It really should almost echo. And there is no way for me to explain this, 
without you actually trying it for yourself. You're likely going to pick a few unripe melons before you get the hang of this. So start with checking the field spot and then thumping and squeezing it at the farmer's market or at the grocery store. Go ahead and do all these little tests that you can and pick one that you think is good and ripe, but that doesn't sound like it's overripe, and take it home. Slice it open. See how well you did. Practice on somebody else's melons before you try picking yours. But honestly, the only way to learn how to do it is to just go for it. I have picked many an unripe watermelon in my day. And yes, it is very disappointing. But the more you practice, the more you're going to get the hang of it. And eventually you're going to pick that beautiful, perfectly ripe watermelon. If you do pick an unripe one and you like pickles, well, try making watermelon rind pickles. At least that part won't go to waste. All right, so let's dig into maintaining your new fruit trees. And again, I am going to say this. I'm going to put it out there. I am kind of lousy at this. I know what to do. I know when to do it, but I have a real hard time just following up and maintaining the proper schedule. And we'll talk about how I'm going to fix that later on. So the first thing I want to talk about is fertilizing. Now, I did mention in the planting episode that you don't want to fertilize the tree when you're planting it unless you are directed to do so by the nursery that you got it from or your, um, your local university extension. So if you choose your site properly, the new root growth should be able to maintain the tree in the existing soil without a ton of fertilizer each year. So you may want to feed the tree as it's getting established, not right away at the initial planting, but within a few months or at least the next year um, until it really does get itself established. You may also need to fertilize if you are planting into soil that is already depleted or it's deficient. But in that instance, you may have to do this annually. So the best time to fertilize fruit trees is during the growing season. So you want to start early in the spring, right around the time that the buds begin to break. Again, if this is a new tree, you're more than likely planting it while it's still dormant. So you don't want to put the fertilizer in at that time. Um, start in the early spring around bud break and then finish around July. A balanced fertilizer, a 10-10-10 is perfectly fine. You don't need to get fancy. If you know the nutrient value of your compost, you can use that as your sort of fertilizer. No matter what you use, you want to apply the fertilizer or the compost mixture over the root zone of the new tree. Or if you're using like a pelleted form, you want to do it around the drip line of the tree. So what is the drip line? The drip line is that circular area on the ground that is beneath the tips of the tree's branches. This is where the water would drip during uh, a rainfall. So that is your drip line. So if you're using pelleted form of fertilizer, put that around the drip line. Um, otherwise, you just want to make sure that you're putting it over the root zone. Again, you might be doing this just for the first couple of years until the, the tree really sort of gets settled in and then allow it to do its thing. You may be doing this periodically if you see the tree is showing signs and symptoms of having some sort of deficiency, um, or you may be doing it annually if you already know that your soil is depleted or deficient. The application of this is going to vary depending on what it is that you're using. So if you're not using a compost, make sure that you are following the product label and the package instructions of the fertilizer that you use. So the next consideration is watering. 
Now, once you have gotten your new tree sort of watered in, unless you live in an area where you have to water just about everything, like you live in a desert area or you are in severe drought conditions, you likely aren't going to need to water your trees after the first year. When they're newly planted though, you do just wanna make sure that they're getting adequate moisture for the roots to be able to reach out and seek nutrients until the plant gets established. So if you are in an area where your growing season is getting about an inch of rain every 10 days to two weeks, you shouldn't have to water at all. But if it's getting really, really dry in a week or two's time, then you can go ahead and give your young trees a good thorough soaking. The best way to do this is to just put a garden hose right down near the root zone and just let it sort of trickle. This gives the water a chance to soak in and it gets down to the roots instead of just running off over the soil surface. You can also use a soaker hose um, if you have a couple of or you know more than one tree that you need to water. Just make sure that you're giving it enough water to soak the ground all around the roots. I do want to, you know, mention this though, even if you're in the midst of, you know, what we consider a drought where your, your lawn starts to turn really, really brown, you really shouldn't need to water too much. Every seven to 10 days or even every two weeks is plenty. It's actually worse for your fruit tree to have waterlogged drowning roots than it is for them to have dry, thirsty roots. So just keep this in mind when you're watering your trees. And this also pertains to once they are fully established. They might need a little bit more water when they're in the early stages, but once they're established, they're sending those roots out and they are finding the water. So unless it is really, really dry, every 10 days to two weeks is really all the water that they need. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about pest and disease control in fruit trees. Yes, just like your annual vegetables and stuff, your tree may end up with issues like pests and diseases. This is going to be determined by where it is that you're gardening, what your weather is, and what type of upkeep uh, you're doing with your fruit tree, and how well it stands up against any of these factors, weather and location, that sort of thing. Um, if you live in an area that is really prone to specific diseases, you can find disease-resistant trees that have been bred to withstand a lot of those things, especially if you don't like the idea of spraying your trees with anything. So if you are going low spray or no spray, look for those if you are in an area that is uh, very disease-prone. So some of the things that help right off the bat to combat pests and disease is making sure that you're giving the tree the proper amount of water, fertilizing when necessary, proper pruning, which we'll talk about in a minute, and then making sure that you do a really good fall cleanup. This can help keep most problems at bay. This isn't that different from our just annual vegetable garden. Remove any weeds and debris pretty regularly. That's going to avoid the com uh, competition for the nutrients, and it's also going to help prevent some of those pests and diseases. Now, there are three different times that you likely are going to want to use something, a spray um, of some sort for insect pests or diseases. It's during dormancy, during bud break, and after blossom. So let's talk about all three of these. Spraying during dormancy is usually done with what we call dormant oil. This is any horticultural oil that is meant to prevent pests 
and it is sprayed just like it sounds when the tree is still dormant. So in late winter and early spring, when the temperatures are just above freezing, this is the best time to apply this. And this is for good for things like scale and for mites and, and other certain insects. Dormant oil sprays are used on fruit trees before the buds begin to swell. And basically what you're doing is you are suffocating any insects or their eggs that have overwintered in the branches. So it's not going to completely eliminate the problem, but it is a great way to just kind of cut off a lot of that overwintered population so you have fewer to deal with once they start to hatch or become active again. So you don't want to spray dormant oil when the temperatures are below 40 Fahrenheit. You definitely want to make sure that it is mixed thoroughly with the water before you start to spray. And then you want to make sure that when you apply it, it covers the entire surface of all of the branches and the trunks, including the underside. That's going to make sure it gets into all those nooks and crannies and gets rid of those eggs and any of those overwintered adults. So other oils and sprays are actually used during the growing season. And this is usually when there are already signs and symptoms of pests or disease or when there has been a history of pests or disease. Your particular growing style is going to determine what you decide to use and you're going to want to do some research on what pests plague each fruit in your area to get a handle on it. It is a vast subject. There's way too much for me to be able to cover here. And keep in mind, a lot of these recommendations that I'm making are for the most commonly planted things, apples, pears, peaches, plums, um, that sort of thing. If you are in a very tropical climate and you're planting things like guava, papaya, banana, that sort of thing, I don't have a whole lot of experience with those. Most of this stuff is pretty standard as far as most fruit trees are concerned, but make sure that you are familiarizing yourself with the potential pest and disease issues for your trees, for your area. Your local county extension is an excellent resource for this. There are tons of resources online for identification um, and how to control them from your university extensions. You can also check with your local garden centers and your local growers to find out from them what you should be looking out for. So those two other times besides dormancy, right? We talked about bud break, and that is when the new growth is coming um, on the trees, and that's when trees are really, really vulnerable to some of these pests and diseases. And then the other time is after blossom, and this is after the petals drop off of those blooms. Waiting until after the blossom or after the petals drop gives your bees and your other beneficial insects a chance to safely pollinate those blooms without being affected by anything you spray, even if it's organic. There are plenty of organic sprays out there that you can use, but that are still not good for the pollinators to come in contact with. So you want to wait until after the petals have dropped. And unfortunately, depending on where you are and what you're trying to grow, you may find that you need to spray for insect pests and some diseases multiple times, including once the fruit has fully formed, um, but before it's reached maturity and ready to harvest. I know several people this year who had such a bad problem with Japanese beetles that they were spraying their peach trees very, very regularly, almost all the way up until harvest, just to be able to get some fruit. So this is the time when you really want to choose what you use carefully because it may leave residue on the fruit. So if you don't want to ingest it or you're not comfortable with that, don't spray it. 
Always, always, always read the labels of what you're using to know how long a control can be applied and how frequently. They will tell you. Use up to three days before harvest or repeat at five to seven day intervals. This is very important. Not only could not following the instructions damage the trees or the fruit or cause harm to those who are eating the fruit, but not utilizing sprays properly can actually cause pest and disease resistance to develop. So make sure that you are using the right spray at the right time for what it is that you're trying to grow. And then finally, let's talk about pruning. Pruning is a really, really important part of most fruit tree care and maintenance, but a lot of people are really, really overwhelmed by it and can often be nervous about doing it. And I am absolutely one of those people. I know it doesn't have to be, but for some reason, I have always got it in my head that I'm going to do something wrong and I'm going to completely screw my fruit tree up. And so I just don't do anything. And that is absolutely the wrong way to go about this. And I've been getting better about it in recent years, but for years I didn't prune at all. And I had some very wild apple trees and pear trees that, uh, that, actually still produced fruit, but they did not produce nearly what they could have if I had been less afraid of what to do. So just keep in mind, when you're looking up resources on how to prune your particular tree, because it does differ, it's different for apples than it is for, say, peaches, um, so you do need to familiarize yourself with that, but just know that not everybody is going to prune the exact same way. This includes the experts. So do what you can, do your best, get as many images as possible and print that out and take it out there with you and hold it up against your tree and go, okay, this is where I'm going to cut these branches and this is what it's said to do. Are you going to make a mistake? Probably, but it really is in the best interest of your tree to do some pruning versus none at all. So even just doing a little bit the first couple of times until you get used to it is going to be better than nothing at all. For most fruit trees, if you leave them unpruned, they may not fruit at all. Um, they may not grow properly. And in some cases, they may not grow at all. So I'm not going to go into how to prune because, again, that completely depends on the tree and the fruit and how you want it to grow. But there are tons of resources for this. Just know that you need to be doing something. The other part of this is fruit thinning. So once your tree does become productive, there may be instances that you need to thin out the number of fruit that are on that tree. This could be anything from reducing the possibility of the limbs breaking because there is so much fruit on it. Um, you may have so many fruit that you need to remove some in order to be able to get a decent sized individual fruit. Um, it might be necessary to get the fruit color and quality to be better. And then a lot of the time it's needed in order to be able to stimulate the flowers to grow for next year's crop. So for most of us, this is actually very easy to do by hand. A lot of us are planting, you know, dwarf or semi-dwarf trees. So we're not having to get up in big cherry pickers and get up there and do this thing. Um, during the late part of the spring and the early part of the summer in most areas, a lot of trees are going to start to drop their underripe fruit anyway. This is a natural process. It's going to let the tree mature the remaining crop load. But if you don't correct some of this through thinning off the excess fruit, there are fruit trees that may only fruit every other year 
if the fruit load is too heavy or they're going to bear really, really heavily one year and then not give you very much the next year. And the only way to fix that is by thinning out some of those fruit during an especially heavy bearing year. It might seem counterproductive, but it really does benefit your fruit tree and your harvest in the end. So hopefully this whole series the past few weeks has sort of demystified the process of planting and growing the fruit trees for you a little bit and then giving you some information about what it takes to maintain them. I know it really is a lot of information and it can seem a little bit overwhelming, but once you've done the research and decided on a tree and a location for that tree, just move forward. Just review the information again as you move through the process and just keep reviewing it. I have to remind myself every single season of how I'm supposed to shape my plum trees. And yes, I get nervous all over again about doing it wrong. It's fine, really. Just get in there and do what you need to do. Just start and just keep reviewing the information as you go. Now here's where I'm changing up how I go about my fruit tree maintenance. I am adding it to my planting calendar in my garden journal. I'm going to go through it in the off season, just like I do with everything else that gets planted as an annual and figure out what needs to be done and when with my fruit trees. I'm also going to do this with my cane berries too, but we're not talking about those right now. Um, I'm going to add those tasks to my calendar during the weeks that it would be appropriate for those activities to occur. And then I'm going to add reminders to my monthly journal for what I should be looking for. Because part of the problem is I often forget to look for the pests or the diseases that are prevalent in my area for my trees until it is way too late to do anything about it. And then all I'm seeing is the damage that has been left behind. So adding it as a task in my plan will make me more aware of what needs to be done and when, so I can try to get my trees healthy and finally be productive. And if that doesn't work, well, I'll just go back two episodes and start from scratch in selecting new trees, and then I will move forward from there. So thanks for tuning in today. If you have a fellow gardener who's been dying to plant some fruit trees but doesn't know where to start, send them one of these episodes and let me help them out, okay? Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden, and we'll talk again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon.